Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's episode is on being against freedom. This is The Police with So Lonely from 1978. This is a show that centers on deprivation as a default social practice. And when searching for music, I'll be honest, I didn't have a hard job. There are way too many songs about loneliness, which I guess speaks quite a bit about our social conditions. This is the first of two conversations I had with Kimberly Brownlee about her recent book, Being Sure of Each Other, an essay on social rights and freedom. Brownlee writes that our social needs are so fundamental, basic, and universal that they lead us necessarily into the territory of human rights. Meeting our social needs for decent human contact, acceptance within a community, companionship, loving relations, and interdependent care is more important than meeting almost every other need we have. She writes further, quote, Human rights protect the brute moral minimum, i.e. the least that we owe each other as human beings. We must have a human right against social deprivation, or rather a right to have access to decent human contact to try to form and keep good social connections, to be protected in our connections once they exist, to be put into supportive connections when we're unable to make social overtures, and to have the social resources we need to sustain the people we care about." Social rights might be called rights that constrain what we like to call freedom. Brownlee makes these claims primarily against freedom of association, which means, in the main, freedom to exclude, and what seems a common assumption that it's not only permissible to ignore other humans, but that it's okay, even a larger social good, to put people in prisons and remove their social networks of care, and more than that, to deprive them of all human contact. This has been widely agreed to be torture, and yet the United States makes it common practice. This social deprivation is not only a moral wrong, but a deep violation of human rights. Kimberly Brownlee is a professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia. Her previous book, also published by Oxford, is Conscience and Conviction, The Case for Civil Disobedience. And now, on being against freedom, with Kimberly Brownlee on Interchange on WFHB. The questions that have always interested me are the ones about how should we live? Uh, what is it to be a good person? And um, this, the work I'm doing right now is focusing very much on being a good person in community, um, being attentive to issues of loneliness, family, friendship, but not just those close relationships. Also, the person you pass on the street. Um, do we have any duty to acknowledge people that we pass on the street? Uh, so, some cities are very social. I spent some time in Nashville and I learned walking down the street that I should not turn inward and start you know, thinking about some idea because people were actually trying to say hello uh, as I was walking down a city street. And, and so it was, it was sort of a delightful um, 
experience it in this in this enormous place with so many people that there was still that kind of personal connection that you usually find on a wooded path or you know mountain trail. Mountain trails are interesting. We tend to we tend to greet people in those settings. We don't usually do it in cities, at least not the ones I know. But Nashville, Nashville was was quite special. We're here to talk about your new book uh, published by Oxford University Press, Being Sure of Each Other, an essay on social rights and freedoms. But if you don't mind, uh, I wondered if you might just give a little bit about your previous work as well. I know you published a book in 2012 with Oxford also, Conscience and Conviction, The Case for Civil Disobedience. Um, do you uh, Are you working in a particular arc, do you think, with uh, your your past work or where you're headed now? Do they all sort of come out of the same place? Um, I, I think so. So communication, dialogue, and being social are, are the unifying ideas in my work. And the, the book on civil disobedience, that started from a sense of awe and, and admiration for people like Gandhi, who could say, my life is my message. Uh, the, the sort of here I stand, I can do no other, um, you know, that display of conviction. Um, and when that conviction is married with mor- moral correctness, uh, moral justifiability, then you've got something really quite impressive. And um, the aim in my book was to show that when we take conscientious objections seriously, we actually need to look at whether this person is willing to stand up and be counted. Someone who um, privately swaps assignments with a colleague so that they don't have to perform same-sex marriage ceremonies, or someone who quietly swaps assignments so they don't have to perform abortions, that person is actually less impressive, less conscientious, in my view, than the person who's willing to be seen. Uh, The person who says, here are my reasons for what I believe. I'm willing to accept the risk of paying the price. I want to have a dialogue. Um, you know, my life is a message, not just my private conviction, and I want to not pay a price for it. So, so I argue that the law and society should be more accommodating of people who engage in civil disobedience because they are visible. They are on the street. Uh, they are willing to pay the price. This is Interchange on WFHB. Today's show centers on the way social deprivation, which includes even ignoring someone on the street, seems a default setting in the U.S., and how more than being morally wrong, it's also a violation of our human rights. Our guest is Kimberly Brownlee, professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia and author of Being Sure of Each Other, an essay on social rights and freedoms, published by Oxford University Press. Marx famously wrote, right, the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways, and the point, however, is to change it. Do you have a sense that that's what you want to do? Or, I mean, you're not, you're not just whistling out there. You're trying to make something, make, make something happen with this book or in these books, right? I love it when I can find a, a puzzle or a problem that philosophers haven't discussed very much. And civil disobedience w- was not that. It was a minority taste topic for quite a while. And then during the, you know, during the Vietnam War, it became a, a popular topic for philosophers. Rawls wrote influential work on civil disobedience. And then it, it kind of seemed to have had its day and be, and wasn't discussed very much in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And, and then uh, there's now a new field of people, a new conversation. And, and I, um, was quite happy to discover that there were there were new things to say that there were things that hadn't hadn't been said and and certainly the the idea that we should 
view civil disobedience as more conscientious than private objection. That yeah. was um, that, that that's been viewed as quite provocative in the literature. The the stuff on loneliness has surprisingly been somewhat virgin territory in in analytic philosophy. There's there's more work on it in continental philosophy. But um, the area I work in, specifically human rights theory, this isn't yet a, a, a big topic for debate. Um, human rights theory, philosophers you know, were, were sometimes a bit late to the game on, on, on many things. That uh, the, you know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights signed in 1948, the International Covenants in the 1960s, but philosophers collectively didn't turn their attention to human rights until John Rawls uh, sort of prodded yeah, you know, wrote, wrote the law of peoples and prodded uh, the community to think about this, and that was 1999. And then the conversation was really about civil and political rights: uh, your your right to vote, your right to stand for office, your right to due process, um, freedom of religion, freedom of movement. And then more recently, there's been an emphasis on some of the socioeconomic rights: so your right to be free from poverty, your right to education, your right to have health care. But there's still is very little, if any, attention to your interpersonal rights, your right not to be denied access to people, uh, your right, if you're, if you're in a family, to be protected in that relationship, your right to have chances to meet people and form a family. Those rights haven't yet had their, had their day. And, mm. and that's, uh, that I hope will be one of my contributions to, to kickstart that conversation. Is, is human rights aspirational more than something that we see uh, on the ground? These are things we talk about, but yet look around you, right? So there is a real, yeah, there's a real uh, problem here in trying to understand how these are applicable or how we make differences that make a difference when, when you do a lot of talking about things, writing about things, reading about things, uh, claiming things are good or bad, claiming there's a good way to be, et cetera, et cetera. But yet, you know, the world moves differently than that. So, so different societies, you know, use different terms to talk about the big moral problems. Um, and, and the United States and, and Canada are fairly, uh, rights friendly societies and people sort of standing on their rights, insisting on their entitlements. You know, that, um, you know the lingua franca in, 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 in North America. Even so, there's sort of this question of, okay, you know, are, are, are human rights, you know, is that concept doing, doing the work it should do? You know, one worry about rights talk is that it can proliferate. You can have sort of an explosion of rights claims. You know, I have a right to this. I have a right to that. And, and, and you have to make a good case for why. Why on earth should we call this thing you're talking about a human right? Philosophers have, have made significant contributions to certainly how the courts, uh, think about human rights. The, the philosopher Henry Hsu, uh, who's based at Oxford, he has pointed out that human rights seem to come with three duties. There's the duty to respect the right, duty to protect the right, and a duty to fulfill the right. And, um, many, many court judgments reference that trinity, that, that list of three duties when they're talking about states failing to do certain things, uh, for their people. Um, that, you know, that they've, that they either haven't respected the right, you know, if they, you know, if someone hasn't received healthcare that they, the basic healthcare that they should have received, or, um, they haven't protected the right, you know, if a third party is, has, you know, engaged in torture and the state hasn't protected someone, um, and then they haven't fulfilled the right, if they haven't provided the actual system, you know, the police on the ground, the, 
um, infrastructure to hold a legitimate vote, you know, that, that then they're failing to fulfill it. You know, little things like that, just conceptual clarity, which is what philosophers focus on, that can be machinery uh, for for courts and for policymakers and and so on. I think uh, the UN has also you know, done a lot of good work through through you know, they've done good work in many ways, but the special rapporteurs have uh, they play a, a, an important role in highlighting big issues. So the conversation about solitary confinement has changed as a result of the special rapporteur on torture flagging that anything longer than two weeks of isolation amounted to torture. Now, I've talked to psychologists who, who've said that two-week figure, that's a political figure, that's not a researcher's figure, um, that actually you know, 24 hours can be to feel torturous. Uh, but still, you know, even to have governments and, and policymakers starting to think, okay, are we actually subjecting our people to torture by isolating them? That's a big step, and that's, that's due to human rights talk. It's time for a break. This is Out on the Weekend, the first track on Neil Young's Harvest from 1972, possibly the saddest album ever made. More with Kimberly Brownlee on Our Social Rights as Human Rights when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is On Being Against Freedom with philosopher Kimberly Brownlee. In this segment, we discuss why the very concept of human rights is actually quite condemnatory of economic, political, and social structures. On some level, the goal seems to be to to change consciousness or awareness of, you know, how we perceive things, how we talk about things, the words we use, um, so that it does change, you know, our, our, even subtly, you know, to be able to change how we might approach these particular responses to people. We had a, a show uh, about Malcolm X uh, not too long ago, and, he, you know, he was evolving towards trying to uh, think about the struggle for equality, black people uh, in America, the equality of black people in America wouldn't be answered by the U.S. Uh, the U.S. would never be uh, a, a place where black people could get uh, some awareness of their human rights 
and he felt that civil rights itself was a mistake. It was too far in front of being recognized as a human first. Uh, and so he was coming at it from that, uh, that, that space. To have civil rights, you first have to be recognized as a human being. And so he, his intention was to take that argument to the UN, basically, you know, to be able to recognize that other, other bodies, other, other large forces might affect a country like the U.S., but the U.S. itself wouldn't, wouldn't affect itself on trying to give black people freedom and equality. Uh, is that, I mean, does that make sense in terms of understanding, you know, a difference between certain kinds of rights or the ways in which people conceive of them? Uh, absolutely. And and that um, reminds me of, of something Michael Ignatieff has written, that when, when you appeal to your human rights, this is rock bottom. You are appealing to the most basic common element between us. You know, we are both human. Recognize me as human. Recognize me as having the same claims, needs, interests as, as other human beings. And so there's, there's in a way something a bit, um, a bit, a bit sad, uh, about human rights that they are br- the brute moral minimum, uh, that when you have to invoke human rights, you, you know, everything else, you know, ha- has failed. Yeah. So it's an interesting empirical question, like you know, some sociological and political question, whether, uh, you know, sort of the best way to get a country like the U.S. to, to be, be more egalitarian and more respectful of people of, of different ethnicities is to start with that rock bottom or is it to start with something more unifying you know we are all americans something a bit more more tribal you know we we uh, should be neighborly to each other we should be supportive of each other because we are all american i that's outside my my area of competence to, to sort of judge the the best strategy to get recognition um, but I would just stress that when you're talking about human rights, you, you've hit the bottom. Um, well, you got to start somewhere. The uh, the t- subtitle of your book um, is uh, an essay on social rights and freedoms. Uh, does this imply that uh, they're in conflict? Yes. Yeah, so, so that title is a, a bit of a tip of the hat to a, a colleague of mine that I admire greatly, uh, Hillel Steiner. He wrote a book called An Essay on Rights, and uh, and so this is a bit of an echo uh, of of his title. Uh, but but yes, the the, the subtitle is meant to suggest that. The, you know, certainly rights can conflict. There's a tension between my positive right to be accepted by a community and other people's freedoms to dissociate. We think a lot about freedom of association, um, you know, our, our right to form a club, um, our right to be part of a union, um, our right to associate with people like us, the people that are pleasing to us. But uh, as feminists have pointed out, we can't talk about freedom of association for babies. Uh, someone has to give up their freedom to dissociate in order for children to develop, in order for any of us to reach adulthood and then start asserting our freedoms. Someone has to prioritize our care, our social needs. And, and so that's one way of um, showing the, the point that rights and freedoms can can clash and we have to resolve them in a way we have to figure out which one matters most and i argue that it's the positive rights that give you social abilities that enable you to become an agent those have priority the social rights i have in mind are principally individual rights it's your your individual right against social deprivation your right to have your basic social needs met uh, in the same way that you have a right to have your basic material needs for food, for water, for shelter met, so too you have a right to have your basic social needs for care, contact, 
uh, you know, support nurturing met. I know you do work in in trying to make these distinctions in the book, but there's one question I often get sort of stuck on when we talk about our rights to uh, food, air, water, etc., um, being able to have those basic needs for living met, uh, is, is that, in, in fact, we don't actually do that, right? We, we live, at least in this society, we live in one in which you must have money, uh, even the minimal amount of money to do anything at all, to have any of those things that you need. Uh, there are obviously charitable situations, there's welfare situations, I understand that, but generally, um, even saying you have an economic right to, to be provided for in some ways, um, that's just not true in a lot of this country anyway, right? I mean, without you having the ability to have some money to pay for something, food, shelter, etc., you don't, you don't have that. Is, is that not a right? Is that right being taken away when you, when you're, when you're not, you're not employed, when you don't have a job, when you don't have money? Are you, are you being, are your rights being harmed? One thing to notice about the U.S. is that there are there are many rights that require money uh, from the state that the state provides. So your right to vote would not be a meaningful real right unless there were an enormous apparatus, an expensive apparatus in place mm. to ensure that your vote could be counted, <laughs> that it would be legitimately processed, that you know, that the legal structure would be there to ensure the vote stands. You know, the, the U.S. has just witnessed the importance of that expensive apparatus to ensure that, um, you know, the election is, is fair and legitimate and clear. We tend to think about civil and political rights as being mere freedoms, you know, freedom of, freedom of association, freedom of movement, freedom of religion. It's, it's sort of just, you know, stay, stay, uh, saying to the state, stay away from my practices. But in fact, those practices won't function unless the state's doing many expensive things to support you. Mm-hmm. Your freedom, uh, your your right to life, your right to physical security, that depends on a functioning police force. And you know, and it's a debate at the moment in the U.S. about whether to defund the police. So, so it's it's sort of interesting to notice that even at you know for the ones that are less controversial, there's a question raised in the U.S. about whether this should be a publicly funded enterprise or a private enterprise. The U.S. has definitely subcontracted many of the tasks that other states view as public responsibilities. So, so prisons, many prisons are, are run by profit, for-profit corporations in the states. And uh, the result is that you know, they have a financial interest in the perpetuation of crime. Um, you know, they they don't have the same incentives that a that a publicly funded institution has. So, so the the ones that are recognized as the ones that are known to be expensive, you know, the, the social the social rights, food, shelter, health, and so on. Those many other states still regard as okay. This is a public responsibility. There is a human right to health. There should be a publicly funded healthcare system available to everybody. Um, so, so it's, it is a, it's a particular issue in the U.S. to determine what things people really, you know, the state should be supporting people to have you know, protected, to be protected in their rights. And there seems to be a chipping away um, of both the controversial and the uncontroversial ones. This is Interchange on WFHB. Today's show centers on the way social deprivation, which includes even ignoring someone on the street, seems a default setting in the U.S., and how more than being morally wrong, it's also a violation of our human rights. Our guest is Kimberly Brownlee, professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia and author of Being Sure of Each Other, 
an essay on social rights and freedoms, published by Oxford University Press. We do have to address, when we talk rights, we're talking about the ability to uh, have a body, an institution, or many institutions that protect or enforce rights. Uh, but without a body to enforce these things, is there, you know, can we talk about rights? The kinds of things that you, we've just been talking about, legal human rights, yes, that takes enforceability, that takes institutions, that takes a society. Um, it can be more than that. You know, there's the international community, uh, the, the collection of states, um, and a lot of international human rights law aims to pick up the slack where states fail. And you, you know, your point about Malcolm X's efforts to um, you know, promote human rights of black people in the U.S. That's sort of saying my state is failing. It's not doing what it's supposed to do to recognize my rights. I need to go to the international community. But still, we're in the business of institutions, enforceability, much bigger mechanisms to try to make these things meaningful. If you can, just try to say why it is that social rights, why why it's important that we think of sociality, of the ability to form connections, make associations, uh, also the ability to sort of be forced into association might be necessary as well. So uh, can you can you give us a brief, I guess, glimpse at the whole of your book? <laughs> <laughs> so in my view, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is in the wrong order. You know, I draw on evidence in social psychology that supports this view. Um, one important, very interesting book uh, in social psychology is by Matthew Lieberman, and it's called Social. And in there, in that book, he makes the case for why our social needs really should be at the bottom of that hierarchy. So in, instead of starting with you know, sort of physical, physical needs, shelter needs, and then agency needs, and then you know sort of sticking social needs up on up higher up the, the pyramid. You have to put the social ones at the bottom because for at, least, for at least two reasons. One is you won't get shelter, you won't get food, you won't get safety unless you have your social needs met. You will not develop as a human being unless you have your social needs met in babyhood and childhood. We don't learn to speak. We don't learn to walk upright. We don't learn to even swallow whole food unless we are adequately socialized. So, so the idea of you know, the feral child, you know, that, that's going to be our fate unless someone properly nurtures us. And then you know, we reach adulthood and we have this, you know, this myth that you and I were discussing of, you know, of self-sufficiency and independence and the ability to choose whether or not to be with people or not. But that's actually not the experience of most of us. Um, and again, you know, feminist philosophy has, has done a lot of good work to show that we are fundamentally relational, that who we are is a, a product, is, is sort of a performance uh, as a result of intersubjectivity. That, you, you know, that we, uh, we, we need people when we are ill, when we're um, injured, when we are unemployed, when we're returning from prison, uh, when we're immigrating, we we need each other to make our projects meaningful. You know, we need a witness to our lives. And as Aristotle puts it, we need others to be a, a moral mirror to you know to help us gauge whether we've behaved well, um, whether you know, we're, we're we're living in a good way. And then as we as we age, we return to dependency. So so we have these bookends to our lives, and we're we're children for almost two decades. If we are lucky to live to an old age, then you know we can be t dependent again for for you know a few decades. And 
And then throughout the course of our lives, we have these these periods of abject dependency and this constant uh, sort of need for the presence of other people as a value in itself. Psychologists indicate that we spend most of our waking hours with other people. You know, <laughs> during the coronavirus, that's not uh, not quite as true as it as it previously was. But that we spend a lot of time with others, and we prefer that uh, to to being alone. So we are we are built to be social. So much so that Matthew Lieberman, uh, he and others have pointed out that when our brains are not asked to do something, they revert to their default network, which is to think about social stuff that, uh, you know, we'll be, we'll ruminate about a past conversation. We'll plan our next encounter. We'll think about the person we're in love with that you know, our brains will do social work uh, when they're not asked to do something else, which is a pretty good indicator of how deeply social we are. Got a band of night is deep down inside us and it won't go away. A band of night is got a band of night is deep down inside us and it won't it's time for another break. This is Terry Allen and the Panhandle Mystery Band with A Bandonitis off the new release Just Like Moby Dick. Stay with us for more of On Being Against Freedom when Interchange returns. You might get left as a child and run crazy and wild and feel sacredly bad every day. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Our guest is Kimberly Brownlee, author of Being Sure of Each Other, an essay on social rights and freedoms. In this segment, we turn to why it's essential to think of our duties to others, their social rights, as informing every minute of life once a person emerges into consciousness. You can't operate on your own fate. Abandon items, don't cut it that way. It's just abandoned items deep down inside us and it won't go away. So one of the things you highlight is that, and you've talked about it a couple of times here, just in terms of the ability to, you know, uh, like an infant or dependent can't make claims on rights. Um, but you also stress throughout, again, from saying that we are, are, are as a species deeply um, social, it means most of what we are as a species comes from that sociality, right? We are what we're socially made to be in a lot of ways. So uh, a big stress has to be on childcare, on, on how we are with children, of how 
how we, as you already said, again, mirror, mirror certain things back to, to children, I suppose. And, uh, it's a, an important point that you make about persistent association, uh, in, in childhood as well as the rest of your life also. So you're making claims about things that we want to have in the rest of our life as well, but seem entirely necessary at the beginning of life and as you're a child. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, you know, we, we will not survive, uh, w- without that. Uh, that uh, without appropriate support and nurturing. And indeed, some philosophers would argue love. Uh, Matthew Liao has written a book called The Right to Be Loved, where he claims that we actually have a human right during our childhoods to be loved. Uh, and this means that all adults have a duty to care, to be concerned with whether we are loved so so there's you know the primary caregiver is the one who has the biggest duty you know, to to do the loving um but it's everyone's responsibility to ensure that children are loved and and his his argument is is largely an empirical one he he looks at the evidence which shows that children don't they don't gain height they don't gain weight if they are not loved that they 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 don't develop uh, psychologically um, and, and he has a very nuanced definition of, of love. It's, it's valuing a child for their own sake, seeking to be physically close to the child, um, feeling you know, broad overall affection and investment in them. Uh, so, so it, you know, it allows that, you know, parents can, can vary in their, in their specific emotions and it, you know, it's not meant to be a, um, a rigid, impossible standard to meet. But that if, if, if we have key interests in, in development that need this, then parents, have, guardians have a duty to love their children. Well, this is one of the hardest things, I think. Uh, generally, it's where I get tripped up because, uh, one, I don't, I, get, I guess as, as an American, again, or as a person trying to understand the ways in which the state can harm us um, and at the same time protect us, you know, it's, it's, one, it's one of those tightropes you walk to think about how we support each other uh, in situations where we know that children aren't cared for. One of the, I guess, fantasy science fiction novels, you know, it's not a, it's not a strange thing to run across stories of, uh, childcare, uh, in the future or in utopia that is handled by, uh, people who actually want to care for children and not parents. Right. So, you know, it's one of the arguments of, uh, I think Ursula Le Guin's book, one of the, uh, left hand of darkness, maybe, or, um, the dispossessed, I'm not sure which one, but basically, you know, there's, there's childcare. There's not mother as a biological fact. Um, but one of the points would be that, you know, it's an essential thing to have happen is to have children brought up well to care about these particular things that you're talking about, that we're talking about as rights. We're talking about believing in, you know, the, the, the quality of, of care you get, the love you get of a, you know, developing self-esteem and developing the ability to care for other people. These things are requirements of a, of a future that is different uh, than the one we're looking at really right now. So the, yeah. So, uh, you know, a big question would be, you know, the one you fight, uh, you know, should we be redistributive? Should we send, you know, should children be allocated to the people best built to love them? Um, Liao doesn't go that far. Uh, but Anka Gauch has, has another philosopher. She has argued that, um, you know, that parents should not have a monopoly on the care of their children. Uh, you know, she thinks cer- certainly as we're putting increasing environment, you know, pressure on the environment, we should be very attentive to the number of people we're bringing into being. 
but everyone should have a chance to be involved in caregiving if they wish. And so, so she thinks that there should be mandatory daycare and that people who are not parents should have opportunities to engage in parenting activities. That this is a, this is a, a fundamentally valuable, beautiful relationship you know, to, to be connected to a child and that children benefit um, when, uh, you know, when they have exposure to, to a range of people who, who care for them and love, love them. And that can, compensate sometimes for inadequacies in in care at home. This is Interchange on WFHB. Today's show centers on the way social deprivation, which includes even ignoring someone on the street, seems a default setting in the U.S., and how more than being morally wrong, it's also a violation of our human rights. Our guest is Kimberly Brownlee, professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia and author of Being Sure of Each Other, an essay on social rights and freedoms, published by Oxford University Press. Well, there are obviously many cultures that treat social care as a community event or a community organizational role, you know, there are, so, so children aren't just cared for by uh, parents or a mother. It's not like we don't have examples. No, that's right. And, and, um, and I think we make parenting hard for ourselves, uh, in individualistic societies, you know, we, where we, you know, bear the brunt of the, of the challenges uh, alone, um, rather than thinking of, uh, you know, where's, where's my village? Uh, you know, and, and in other countries, it's, it's interesting to watch how invested the whole society seems to be in the fortunes of, of the children, that, um, that sort of all children are under everyone's guardianship, that everyone can worry about the child who's looking like they might go into the street and, uh, you know, and everyone has a role to play to make children feel loved. You've got to have a positive environment <laughs> to, to raise good, to raise caring people, to, for them to become caring people. Um, it's weird that it's something we have to talk about. Indeed. Yeah. It, it should be obvious. But the point you make there too, and, uh, and again, I like this point in the book about needing to be able to care for other people as well. Uh, I like this point also. It's a difficult one to come to terms with, like being able to care for other people is essential to your own social life, your own social rights to, to be able to, uh, to provide, to give love, to be needed. All these things are as essential as, as the one being loved. You need to be the lover. Also, right. that's right. Yeah. So, so whenever we make offers of kindness, we're 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 actually saying to someone, you know, please let me be of use to you. Please let me know that I am useful. Know that I am valuable. In the UK, uh, Lord Richard Layard, he's known as the, the happiness czar. He's an economist who focuses on well well being. His hypothesis is that we will feel less lonely. When we are able to be useful, you know, when we have people who need us, people who, who depend on us, you know, not to the point of exhaustion, but when we are able to be useful and needed, um, then we feel connected. We feel uh, less lonely. So, so yes, that is a big, a big claim in, in the book that, um, that, you know, the social relations are reciprocal, even if they appear to be one sided. So even if children appear to be recipients of social connection and care, they actually are providers of social connection and care that they, uh, you know, first of all, children make thousands of bids for connection. They, they constantly reach out for connection. Um, but that in caring for a child, you meet your need to be needed. 
Uh, I start the book, chapter one, with a reference to a New Yorker article from 2018 by uh, Leif Batuman on the rent-a-family industry in Japan. And one of the cases she, she talks about is an older couple renting some time with a baby grandson. Uh, that they, you know, so this, you know, this isn't their own grandson, but they, they rent a few hours to hold a, a, a baby. And my take on that case is that, that they are wanting to meet that need to be needed. You know, that the baby isn't going to remember that moment. There's no sort of future benefit to them. Uh, you know, they're not going to get a reciprocal response later. They, it's just this moment of contact and connection. And I think it's to satisfy a fundamental urge, a need to be needed. And this uh, creates social deprivation when you're not able to be needed as well. So so we can be socially deprived in, in many different ways. I, I talk about three in the book. Um, the most obvious is coercive isolation. So when you're put into solitary confinement in prison, or indeed during a lockdown, if you live alone and and you're told you have to quarantine behind your front door for the next two weeks, you're you're forced into isolation, and and that can become privative. The other two contexts I look at are a little less obvious, but one of them is being incidentally isolated. So you know if you if you are physically impaired, if you're older, you need some help to stay social, and you're neglected by your society then you are, are potentially experiencing social deprivation. The third context is that of being in social connection with you or social contact, but your setting is brutal. In many ordinary prisons, this is how it is. You're surrounded by people, perhaps in overcrowded conditions, and uh, you know, there's, no, there's no space for decent connection here. This is the site of, of abuse, of violence, of assault. Um, of self-harm, of suicide. This is not a setting in which people can healthily meet their social needs. Um, so, so the case that we were just talking about of the need to be needed, you know, people in all three of these settings will most likely feel that need is going unmet. How did that loneliness Smile all the time. It's time for our final break. This is Wilco with How to Fight Loneliness from their 1999 release, Summer Teeth. Stay with us. Shopping them with flies And whatever's going down Follow you around That's how you fight loneliness You laugh at every joke Drag your blanket blindly Heart with smoke in the first thing that you want will be the last thing you ever need. That's how you fight it. 
Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is about social rights as rock-bottom human rights and the difficulty of having this conversation in a country devoted to the torture of so many of its citizens. Smile all the time Just smile all the time I purposely didn't start with uh, social deprivation simply because it, it is an easy one to start with prisons. Why I'm interested in having this conversation as much as anything else, again, is because it's an essential conversation. But we have a country, USA, devoted to torture, basically. Which may sound extreme to somebody. If I say the, the country is devoted to torture, it sounds like I'm just being provocative. But we have an immense prison population. We treat people pretty badly in many other ways as well. We have horrible ghetto situations in every city. So there, this is a country in which I think it would be difficult to have uh, rights talk about uh, social rights in ways which people might listen to you, but also might absolutely have no no way to understand a different world. Um, it's just such a strange thing to imagine that you can't look at prison as a failure of of humanity. I would want to say two things in response. The first is um, Atul Gawande uh, wrote a very influential article in 2009 called Hellhole um, about solitary confinements in U.S. prisons where, where he, tells, he says this is, this is torture. Uh, he talks about um, other experiences that, that where the people involved say, yes, this is absolutely what that is. You know, people who are solo sailors, um, people who are astronauts, you know, military people who've spent time in isolation, they say that that is the hardest thing. You know, being sick, uh, being injured, um, you know, dealing with 50-foot waves, that's tough, but the worst part is the isolation. And so he he says solitary environment, this really is torture. I wanted to to argue that even if someone had the training or had the fortitude that they could somehow not find this torturous, you know, just as some people are able to fast um, for for long periods of time without you know becoming malnourished in the same way that most of us are. Even someone exceptional like that would be violated by solitary confinement because we are deeply social. That you're when you're put in isolation, you are rendered abjectly dependent. You must wait for someone to come to you. You must hope that you know if there's a crisis and everyone needs to get out, that someone will remember that you're there. Ordinary prison settings in the U.S., you know, they're, they're not so much better because there's, there's such a dehumanizing approach to people's punishment. And so, and so this is the second thing I want to say. Um, toward the end of my book, I talk about the language we use to describe people who have committed offenses. And that language is very reductive, very essentialist. This person is a criminal, a felon. Um, and even when they, you know, get out of prison, they're an ex-con, ex-felon. And then we have uh, you know, a whole range of terms that are much more specific. This person is a murderer, a rapist, a pedophile, a serial killer. You know, this is the language that defines their life. And I think that has a significant impact. The way we talk about things has a big impact on how we treat people and, and what, what policies we adopt. And I don't in any way want to, to speak lightly of the offenses that people commit that, that can, can land them in prison. I find it very interesting that some prisons, and I know more specifically about UK prisons, they are deliberately trying to change the language they use. So, so, um, there's a prison in, in Stafford, HMP Stafford. It's a national hub in the UK for people who have committed sexual offenses. And they don't talk about the people that are in their custody as 
prisoners, they speak of them as residents. They're residents in the facility. And they don't talk about having a, a bin man. They have a maintenance technician. They don't have a greeter. They have an information ambassador. And they don't talk about it being feeding time. They're serving lunch. Those changes in language, um, that, that opens up a, a different way of of doing things. Um, and it's and it's worth opening up that different way because the people who end up in prison do not typically have a profile that fits with the general population. People who end up in prison are much more likely to have witnessed abuse as a child, to have endured abuse as a child, to have dropped out of school, to have a mental health problem, uh, to have used class A drugs, to, you know, to have lived a much tougher life than most people live. And so, so that all has to be taken into account when we think about how we respond to people when they do something seriously wrong. Well, you're describing their, their social deprivation uh, from childbirth on, bringing them to the ultimate in social deprivation being in prison. Yes. This is Interchange on WFHB. Today's show centers on the way social deprivation, which includes even ignoring someone on the street, seems a default setting in the U.S., and how more than being morally wrong, it's also a violation of our human rights. Our guest is Kimberly Brownlee, professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia and author of Being Sure of Each Other, an essay on social rights and freedoms, published by Oxford University Press. Kimberly, we're running long now, and I do want to have a second conversation. Do you want to um, um, preview that by, uh, I think, talking about this distinction between these claims, uh, social rights and freedoms that that the book's title does, uh, you know, trying to claim that one has that positive persistence association claim comes first over your freedom to disassociate, which I often think of uh, as a freedom to exclude other people. From, from things you do. So uh, do you want to give a, a preview of that? And we'll do that for the next conversation. I'll focus on what I say in chapter four, which is on, on interactional freedom. So the, the book looks at uh, our interactional freedoms and our associative or associational freedoms. Um, and I think that in our day-to-day life on the street, we actually have less interactional freedom than we claim for ourselves or in the, in the sense of we have a smaller space of permission to ignore each other. Um, you know, I've, I've put this question to, to many people, um, in, including you know, some, some judges. You know, do, you know, do you have a duty to acknowledge the homeless person who calls out to you on the street? And almost universally, the response is, well, no, no, you don't have a duty. And, um, you know, they sort of thought, well, you know, it would be polite if you acknowledge someone. It's maybe you know, good manners, a matter of etiquette. But this isn't a moral requirement. And in my view, that's that's a mistaken conclusion that, that actually we do have a duty to acknowledge someone who bids for our attention. It's it's what philosophers would call a pro tanto duty, which means it's a duty amongst all our many other duties. It's not necessarily the one all things considered that we have to follow every time. Uh, you know, I might be running to the hospital to get to my partner. I might be late to get my children, you know, from school. You know, there, there can be reasons why we don't stop and acknowledge someone. But the, the reason it's a moral duty, a, a pro tanto moral duty to acknowledge a person is that this is a key way we show respect and show disrespect. So, so the philosopher Leslie Green, he, he says that 
in order to respect someone, it's not enough that when I choose to think about them, I think about them respectfully. It also requires that I actually think about them. If this person comes within my general sphere, the people about whom I meaningfully can think, and the person in front of me is someone like that, uh, you know, people halfway around the world that I don't know about, very hard for me to think about them meaningfully as individual people. But the person right in front of me is someone I can meaningfully think about. And so Leslie Green says, I have a duty to think about that person and think about them respectfully. And if I ignore someone uh, bidding for my attention when I'm not in a hurry, I'm essentially saying, you know, you're beneath my notice. Uh, I'm not worried about what you might do for me or to me. You know, I, I don't have to recognize you as human. Um, so, so in a way, this is, you know, this is one of the more illiberal part of parts of my book. But I think, you, I think it's perhaps one that may be intuitive to, to more of us now during the pandemic, because we are losing right now those those brief incidental moments of contact. Um, you know, we're not getting, we're not able to have as many smiles with strangers on the street because, you know, if we're wearing our masks, you, you, you have to be pretty good at spotting eye wrinkles in order to know that someone's actually acknowledging you. Um, few of us are on the street, uh, or if we are, we're, we're hurrying along that we're not. Um, so those, those incidental moments are fewer right now, but this is a, a precious site of social connection. And we do actually have duties in this domain. Let me ask a real quick follow-up. Uh, you mentioned that this was one of the more illiberal things you talk about. Let's be clear on what you mean by that in terms of liberal uh, or not. Uh, so you're at attaching that to the idea of dissociative uh, freedoms, the right to not associate is a, a liberal right that you're standing against in this particular case anyway. The things I say about associational freedom, I, I think of associations in terms of Sort of richer, richer connections, um, joining the union or, or not being in this friendship circle or, or not excluding these people from joining our club or not. So, so I think of associations in terms of persistent connections of who gets to be a member. What are we going to do together? Um, who are, whom are we allowed to exclude? And, 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 you know, do I have a right to exit? Can I, can I leave this group if I want to? Interactions, it's more. You know, what are my duties when I'm on the street? What are what are your duties? What claims do we have on each other? Just as people going about our lives who, you know, someone might drop their groceries, someone might need help getting across the road. You know, am, am I perfectly within my rights to ignore everyone or do I have some duties here? So you're placing duty then as the the check on freedom. I, I like what you're saying. You're saying there's a duty to recognize someone's humanity, and one does that by actually recognizing them in the street or in, in these little interactional spaces. You, you can contrast duties with permissions. If I have a duty, then I don't have a permission to ignore this thing. You know, I, I have to pay attention to this thing. Freedom is a bit different from permission. You know, freedom is usually, okay, here's my protected space in which I can act even if I act impermissibly. So freedom of speech, it's, it's there so that you can say offensive things. That's, you know, you don't need a freedom if you want to just say nice stuff. You know, you, you need a, a scope of freedom in order to say things that are edgy, um, or, or even libelous. You know, John Stuart Mill, the, the great champion of, of freedom, he, he said, we have to tolerate every objectionable view because we profit from that. You know, we need the collision of opinions. We need, you know, the only way we're going to make progress is if we hear the views we don't like. 
and if that reminds us of the arguments for the views we do like. Uh, so, so your freedoms are actually, they give you a protected sphere in which to act wrongly. And so the question is, does that protected sphere trump your duties? Uh, and I'm saying that, uh, you know, that on the streets, certainly if everyone else is not doing their duty, your protected sphere to ignore someone will not trump your duty to acknowledge them. That's our show. We'll close with Steve Earle and Rodney Crowell. Stay a little longer. Recorded on December 24th, 1975 at the home of Guy and Susanna Clark. Excerpted from the 1976 documentary film Heartworn Highways. Remember, we'll continue this conversation with Kimberly Brownlee next week. We'll look at rights as a Western concept, but one that finds core tenets in a universal sense of morality. We'll even look at ways in which love, yes, love, finds a central place in this fight against social deprivation as an inexhaustible social resource. Kimberly Brownlee's new book is Being Sure of Each Other, published by Oxford University Press. I'm Doug Storm. I produced this episode of Interchange. Kate Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for sharing your time with us. Oh,